Well, today we are um, continuing a series that we began uh, last Sunday. It's called Sex, Gender, and Faith. And the main question we're talking about during this series um, is this, what does it mean to be male and female? Now, last week I did a ton of introduction type stuff. Uh, I share with you why we're doing this series, some hesitations I have, even a really big caveat uh, to make. And then we spent some time talking about the difference between uh, sex and gender, because there's a really important distinction. So I want to give you those definitions again real quick. Um, Sex refers to the biological, physiological traits that distinguish between males and females. So uh, reproductive structures, hormones, genetics, those kinds of things. Whereas uh, most people today use the word gender differently. Gender refers to the psychological, behavioral, cultural, and social aspects of being a male or female. In other words, how we as a culture define masculinity and femininity. So gender is a very um, contested idea. Uh, Sex, that people are made biologically male or female, is not really contested. Now, also last week we discussed um, intersex medical conditions, and then uh, we talked about whether God is a male or a female. So I think we covered a lot of ground last week, Um, but it was really important to lay some some foundation or groundwork. So if you weren't here, I really encourage you to go back and listen to that message. You can do that on our website because a lot of things uh, we talked about then um, will sort of help us as we move forward. Today, we're going to read a story that is very familiar, probably to most of us. It's actually the creation story from Genesis 1 and 2. And so, um, in fact, if you're reading through the Bible with us, you just read this a couple of weeks ago. And yet today, I want to point out some things in this story that I am guessing you have never uh, seen before or noticed. Now, um, we're not going to talk about evolution We're not going to talk about how old the earth is. We're not going to talk about how to take this story, whether it's supposed to be literal or figurative or any of those kind of things. Um, We're not going to do that today uh, for three reasons. Number one, we just don't have time today. Um, Number two, we did a whole seven-week series on that a few years ago called In the Garden. So if you want to do a deep dive on all of those questions, uh, you can go back and search for that on our website and listen to those messages. Um, But the third and probably the most important reason is that this story that we're going to read today in Genesis is not actually answering a lot of the modern questions that we bring to it. It's answering very different questions. Questions like, why are we here? What is our purpose? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be male and female? So with all that in mind, um, we're just going to jump in. And you know how the story starts, right? In the beginning, God created the whole world. And then in this very uh, poetic, um, beautiful, sort of sing-song kind of way, it describes how God uh, created the seas, and then he created the land, and then he created the skies, and and he created the sun, and the moon, and the stars, and the plants, and the trees, and then he filled the seas with animals, and then he filled the skies with animals, and then he filled the land with animals. And then it says this, Then God created mankind, and the Hebrew word there is ha'adam. We'll come back to that. Mankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So this is really significant because God creates humans differently than everything else he has created so far. It says he made humans in his own image, 
And then right before this, it also says they were made in his own likeness. And just to be clear, it says we're talking about all of humanity, all mankind, males and females are both made in his image and likeness. Now, what does it mean to be made in God's image and likeness? Well, we don't have to speculate. We actually get the answers right there in the book of Genesis. A few chapters later, we're told about a guy named Adam. And it says this, When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image. And he named him Seth. So this guy Adam had a son named Seth. And people would look at Seth and they would say, Man, he looks just like his dad. Right? And as Seth got older, they said, man, he talks like his dad. He acts like his dad. The more older he gets, the more he resembles his dad. In fact, some people will say he is the spitting image of his dad. That's what it means to be made in someone's image. So for humans to be made in the image and likeness of God means we look like God. We resemble God. If God had a physical body... We said last week he doesn't, but if he did, right, and then he had biological children that he could pass his genetic traits along to, we're it. We look like him. We resemble God. Now, there's something else that it means to be made in the image and likeness of God, and we get a clue right in Genesis 1, right? After it says humans were made in his image and likeness, it says this, God blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So God gives humanity a job, a role, a purpose. And the first part of our purpose is to be fruitful, to increase and fill the earth, which basically just means reproduce, right? Have kids, Create more human beings. And some of you are taking that role really seriously. All right? So you're, we're given this role to create more human beings, which, by the way, think about it. This is what God had just done. God had just created humans. And so now he's passing along this task and this role to us to also create human beings. Now, the second part of our purpose is to subdue and fill the earth. Uh, This word subdue can sound kind of negative, but it means bring order from the chaos, which is what God has been doing for about a week now, right? That's the whole creation account is God is bringing order from all of the chaos in the world. But now he's handing that over to humans as well. And he's saying, I want you to bring order into this world. And that means you're going to rule over the world. You're going to rule over creation like a a wise and a benevolent ruler, because that's what God has been doing. God has been ruling over creation, and so now he's inviting humans to rule over creation as well on his behalf. So what does it mean to be made in God's image? It means as human beings, we resemble God, and it also means we represent God. We look like him, we resemble him, and we represent him on the earth. We do the work of creating and sustaining and cultivating and ruling creation on his behalf and as his representatives. In fact, get this. In the ancient world, 
uh, kings would set up statues of themselves in the lands where they ruled. And in the ancient world, these statues were not called statues. The words they used were these were called images because the images looked like the kings and they represented the king's presence and rule over the king's land. And here's what is so significant for us. Genesis 1 goes out of its way to say that both males and females are made in the image and likeness of God. We both, males and females, look like him. We resemble him and we represent him in this world. Now, we'll come back to some implications of that, but I need to tell you a second story. Um, What we just read was part of the first creation story that's told in Genesis 1, but you get a few verses into Genesis 2, and there's a second different creation story. And I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago when I said uh, the people who put together the book of Genesis compiled these different uh, stories from different sources and oral traditions. And so we actually have two different creation stories sitting here side by side which might seem odd at first, but it's not that odd or strange. We have four different stories of Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? And these four different accounts, uh, sometimes they tell the exact same stories. Sometimes they tell the same stories, but with different details and different perspectives and emphases. Sometimes they tell totally different stories. But it's actually way better to have four different accounts than just having one account, because you get more information, and you get different perspectives. So in Genesis 2, we actually get a different creation story that's going to tell us sort of the same things that the first one told us, but it's going to give us a different perspective about how God created humans. Here's what it says. Then the Lord God formed a man, Ha'adam, from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living man being. Now, I I need to talk about a bunch of like little Hebrew stuff today, but it will be really important. This Hebrew word, ha'adam, it's the same word that's used in the first story, and it can mean this general sense of mankind or humanity. So this is telling us the same story that the first one said, when God created humans in his image. But ha'adam can also mean a specific man or a specific human being. Ha is the in Hebrew. Adam means human. And so it says God breathed into humanity's nostrils and humanity became a living being. So it's clear this story is talking about one human being that is representative of all human beings. Now, here's what's interesting. Later in the story, a few chapters later, we actually just read it This human has a son named Seth, and when it describes this human at that point, the ha is dropped, and it's just Adam, which becomes his name, which is where we get the English word Adam. So some translations will even back up and start using the name Adam right there in chapter 2, even though it says ha-Adam at this point. And I don't think that's helpful because um, literally it's not really accurate. But more importantly, we lose something when we call this person Adam. Because Adam doesn't really have any significance or meaning to any of us in English. 
And let me give you an illustration. It's kind of silly to explain this. This is like whether we use the name (laughs) Dwayne Johnson to refer to this guy or The Rock, right? If If he's Dwayne, he's just Dwayne, right? But if you say he's The Rock, every time you call him by that name, you think of what? A rock. You think of strength. You think of something big and strong and immovable, right? The word and the name means something. But Adam, in English, doesn't really mean anything to us. It's a lot like the word Duane. But in Hebrew, it means human. It means human being. So every time this story was told, every time ancient people heard this story, it was a reminder to them that this story is not just about one human, it's about all humans. It's about all of us together, that Ha-Adam represents all human beings. So uh, to help us recapture that just a little bit, every time the word um, Ha-Adam shows up in the text as we read through it, Instead of putting the man in there, or instead of putting Adam in there, I'm just going to put the name human, because that's how this story would have sounded to ancient people hearing it every time they heard it. So the story goes on to say, God put human in the garden, and this garden, uh, he gives human a task, and the task is to take care of this garden, to cultivate the garden, to help it flourish, to, to bring forth fruit which is basically just a more creative way of saying the same thing Genesis 1 said. God is giving humans this role of taking care of creation and helping it to flourish. But then the second story takes an interesting turn. Chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for human to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So it's not that human is lonely. That's not what it's actually saying. It's that he needs help. He can't cultivate the garden by himself. He can't oversee God's creation by himself. He cannot fulfill the role that God has given him to do by himself. So look at what God does next. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to human to see what he would name them. And whatever human called each living creature, that was its name. So human gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for human, no suitable helper was found. So God does this really interesting thing where he says, Hey, human, come here. Um, I'm going to bring all the animals to you, and I want you to name each one. Now, naming is actually a way of exercising authority over something else or over someone else. And God had said, you're going to rule over all of the animals. So this is one of the first ways that human could begin to rule over the animals, to exercise authority over them. So human uh, names all of the animals, and we don't know how long this takes, but the story just isn't really concerned with those kind of details. But it helps human to see that the animals will not function as an adequate helper for him. And this is really huge. Human needs someone who can help him for whom he does not have authority over. He needs someone who is his equal. 
He needs someone who is like himself, but is not himself, is different than himself. And so God provides. Next verse. So the Lord God caused human to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of human's ribs and then he closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman, Isha, from the rib he had taken out of human and he brought her to human. So um, you can read this as God puts human to sleep, right? A little anesthesia, then God performs surgery. He cuts human open, pulls out a rib, does his magic with the rib. Somehow the rib becomes a woman. He sews human back up, wakes human up, and then says, you know, ta-da, look at what I have for you. Now, I don't know if that's the way ancient people would have heard this story. I'm not sure that's the way they would have heard it. I don't know, but the Hebrew term for causing human to go into a deep sleep is the same word used in the rest of the Old Testament for when God gives a prophet a vision or an important dream. And so maybe that's what's happening. Maybe God puts human to sleep and then he gives him a vision or a dream of the kind of helper that he's going to provide. Now also, um, the Hebrew word for rib almost never means rib. (laughs) In fact, most Bibles um, say that. There will usually be an asterisk or a footnote in the Bible that you're reading, and you look at the bottom and it says, this word doesn't usually mean rib. And that's because outside of this story in the Old Testament, this word is never used to refer to human anatomy. It usually refers to rooms in a building. It's in discussions of architecture. So it refers to rooms that are on the right side of the building or rooms that are on the left side of the building. So the earliest translators didn't know what to do with that because it's talking about something inside of human. So they thought, well, maybe it's talking about his ribs because we all have ribs on the right side and ribs on the left side. Could be lungs, right? We have a lung on the right, left, right? Could be our elbows, could be our earlobes, who knows? Um, Probably what this means is that God took half of human. He cut human in half. And he took one side of human, one half of human, and he formed a whole other person. Which is why when human wakes up and there's a woman there, look at what he says. Human said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman, Isha, for she was taken out of man, which is the word Ish. And now we get these specific gendered or sexed terms for man and woman, Ish and Isha. I'll call her Isha because she is like Ish. Together, Ish and Isha will be the two halves of humanity, man and woman, male and female. And then the writer of Genesis adds this, That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. That the uniting of a man and woman is like a symbol, a picture of the two halves of humanity coming back together again to be one. And when they come back together again to be one, what do they do? They reproduce. They create new life. They live the role that God gave them to live. In fact, the woman will later be named life. That's what Eve means in Hebrew. 
This is the story of human and life. Now, this is a really important story. It's so important that one day when Jesus is having a really intense conversation with some of the religious leaders and some of his disciples about men and women, he goes back to this story. He quotes it verbatim and he says, hey, if we want to answer this question that we're talking about right now, we need to go back to Genesis 1 and 2 because that should shape how we think about this. It's so important that Paul quotes this story word for word on numerous occasions in his letters and in his discussions about God and humans and men and women. These are foundational stories in Genesis 1 and 2. And they communicate three really important truths as it relates to males and females. The first truth is this, sex equality. Now, remember, um, sex and gender are different. Gender is about uh, socially or culturally constructed views of masculinity and femininity. And we'll talk about gender more in the next couple of weeks. But that's not really what these stories are about. These stories are about sex. These stories are about two biologically different types of human beings, males and females. And these stories are telling us that males and females are equal in their essential being. Both males and females are made in the image of God. Both males and females resemble God and represent God. Both males and females will resemble and represent what it means to be human. That's sex equality. The second truth that we see is sex mutuality. And this means that males and females are mutually dependent upon one another. They help each other. They complement each other. They work together. One is not over the other. One is not under the other. There is a mutual working together of living out the role that God gave to humans. Now, sidebar, um, some in earnest have read these stories and come to a different conclusion. That Genesis 1 and 2 teach us that women should be subordinate to men, should be underneath men, that males and females are not really equal or mutual. Because after all, God made the man first and the woman second. God made the woman from the man. And because the woman was made to be the man's helper. And that means, some think, that God made men to be the leaders. He gave them the authority And women were made to play a subordinate, supportive role. And I would suggest that that perspective, that men are supposed to be the leaders and women are supposed to be the submissive servants, is actually just a gender stereotype. It's a gender role. It's a gender expectation that is culturally constructed idea about what men are supposed to be and do and what women are supposed to be and do but that it does not come from Genesis. Now, there are some other complex passages in the Bible we don't have time to talk about today, but the stories in Genesis tell us that men and women are fully equal to each other in every single way. There is no sense whatsoever that women are subordinate to men. If uh, the woman being made after the man means that she is subordinate to the man, then doesn't that mean that the man is subordinate to 
the animals? Because they were made first, and he was made after them. If the woman being made from the man means that she is subordinate to the man, well, then doesn't that mean that the man is subordinate to the ground, the dust of the ground? Because that's how the story started. It said the man was made from the dust of the ground. And what about this term, uh, suitable helper? Right? Because it says that the man needs a suitable helper, which could sound like he's in charge, right? He's moving forward. He's the leader. He just needs an admin assistant to come take a few things off of his plate, right? And help him out. But that's not what this term means. The Hebrew word for suitable means a counterpart, a partner who is opposite of you, but who complements you. And get this, the Hebrew word for helper, whenever it's used in the Bible, the helper is not the weaker person coming alongside the stronger person who's doing the leading. It's actually the opposite. Usually the weaker person is the person calling for help and they need someone stronger to come along and help them. In fact, in the rest of the Bible, God is referred to as Israel's helper. Israel can't do what they need to do, and they need God, who is much more stronger and much more powerful, to come in and lead them and help them. So there is nothing in this passage that suggests the subordination of women to men. In fact, in the very way that the woman is made from half of the man, the way that he responds, right? She is my bones. She is my flesh, it's, it's kind of like he's saying, she completes me, right? Everything about this passage communicates to us that males and females were made as equals, not one above the other, but as equals mutually working together to be God's representatives, to do the work that he gave us to do. And that leads to a third important truth, and that's sex difference. Because as much as males and females are equal and they mutually work together, they bring different things to the table, right? They contribute in different ways. They complement one another because they are different. Now, we talked about the most obvious differences last week, biological differences, in reproduction, right? Males and females are made differently and both will play a role. Different roles, but both will play a role in creating humans, creating new life. And that has never changed. In fact, the only way that humans could continue to sustain life, could flourish and increase in number and bring new life into this world requires the cooperation of both males and females. It cannot happen with only one. And I would suggest the implications are even uh, broader, right? Any human endeavor, any work that we do, any community we create, any web of relationships that we depend upon, anything we seek to accomplish, any way that we live out our God-given role in the world should include men and women working together. See, all three of these truths are so, so important. And when we uphold uh, sex equality and sex mutuality and sex difference, when males and females treat each other as equals 
And they honor each other's differences. And they work together in mutuality. That's when we most live out God's creation intent for humans. And that's when we most resemble and represent who God is. Because let's not forget, God is a triune God. Three persons who are equal, yet different, mutually working together. Now, I know this is a lot of ground to cover today um, in the text and a bunch of Hebrew stuff, but I want to wrap up with one more final sort of summarizing truth to just bring it all together. And it's this. Sex is an essential human trait. It's part of who we are. It's how God made us. It's how God wired us. It wasn't enough to have one type of human. The story literally says that. It's the first time God says something is not good. It wasn't good that there was only one type of human. And so he made two types, males and females. And our maleness and our femaleness is essential to who we are. Now, that does not mean there is a perfect standard of male or female out there that we all have to conform to. And if you don't conform to this perfect uh, prototype, then you're not really a male or a female. Those are gender stereotypes, all right? It also does not mean that we will all uh, get married and fulfill the reproductive role in creating new life with someone of the opposite sex. I mean, if that's what it means to be the perfect male or female, then Jesus himself fell pretty short of that. So there are not these these fixed poles, if you will, of perfect maleness and femaleness. Right? There's so much diversity and so much uh, different, beautiful expressions of male and female. And of course, we also live in a fallen world now where our physical, biological bodies don't always work the way we wish they did. Uh, My wife and I couldn't have biological children for a long time. Does that mean that we were not a real male and female? No, it just means we, we grieved that our bodies were not able to do what God created them to be able to do in the beginning. So there's not a fixed perfect male and female by which everyone has to measure themselves by. But I would also say the language of fluidity isn't helpful here either when it comes to sex. Now again, we're not talking about gender, gender roles, gender stereotypes, those kind of things. But the reality of sex, the dimorphic nature of maleness and femaleness is an essential human trait. It's not a cultural category to throw out or to dilute or to deconstruct or to abandon. It's who we are. It's part of what it means to be made as a human. In fact, it is so important that it took center stage in the most foundational stories we have about what it means to be a human and what it means to resemble and represent God. Now, next week, we'll talk a whole lot more about gender And uh, as I mentioned, we'll have a guest here, a friend who will personally share what it's like to wrestle with gender identity. So I hope you'll be there for that. But let me.
pray for us as we wrap up today. Lord, I pray that you would help all of us um, to see ourselves the way you see us. As deeply loved, as made in your image and in your likeness. God, in whatever doubts we have about who we are, in whatever ways we feel that we fall short of some standard, in whatever ways we struggle with identity, in whatever guilt we carry or shame we carry, and whatever it is, God, I pray that you would break through that and you would help us to see that you breathe the breath into our lungs, that you made us beautiful and precious, that as the psalm says, we are all fearfully and wonderfully made. Help us to see that, believe that, and praise you for that this morning. I pray this in your name. Amen.